My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. Well, I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Pragya Agawal, who's written a really interesting book that I've just finished reading, Pragya. So thank you for that. It's been a great read. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in our conversation. But just before we get going, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you, Matthew. So as Matthew said, I'm Pragya Agarwal, and I'm a behavioral and data scientist. I was an academic in US and UK universities for a very long time. Now I'm a freelance journalist and a consultant, and I've just written a book called Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias. It's just come out last month with Bloomsbury in the UK and coming out tomorrow in the USA. Yes, so that's me. What are the challenges of promoting a book in the current circumstances? It has been challenging because we're trying to discover new ways of doing that. So when my book came out on the 2nd of April, lockdown had just started before then. So we had a series of events and festivals, planned talks, live events, and they had to be cancelled and very rightly so. So we had to immediately think of what are the ways can be done to reach audience because people weren't really wandering into bookstores. There were no bookshop displays or tables. So it's challenging to reach people and to be talking about a book when there are such far wider, bigger issues at stake as well doing a lot of virtual events, doing a lot of outreach things and talks through Zoom, obviously, trying to reach a broader audience through social media. But that's the challenge really at the moment. Well, I really want to talk to you about the book, which I found fascinating. But before we get into any of that, Pragya, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask everybody on this podcast, which is how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic? I think this is a really big question and I've been giving it a lot of thought over the last few weeks, of course, more so than ever. I think what this pandemic, the lockdown has done is to highlight some of the socioeconomic inequities that people often brush under the carpet or don't talk about or ignore or dismiss or challenge or say that they don't exist. And I think initially when the pandemic started, people were talking about how the virus doesn't discriminate, but we've seen how actually the virus doesn't discriminate, of course, but it does affect people in different ways according to your place in the hierarchy, your status in society, the privileges that you have. And so we know that it's been affecting people of color much more than others, BME communities being affected more so than others. And I do get wary of the discussions around it because ultimately it kind of comes around to people saying it's because of genetic or biological differences. But I 
personally believe very strongly that it's because of the systemic and structural biases that exist. This is why the virus is going to affect some people more than others. Some people have this natural layer of privilege around them that protects them from it. So I think it's showcasing that much more. It's showcasing that we are not all the same, that we don't have the same privileges and opportunities and our position is different. And I hope that people take that on board and I hope that that becomes something that we take more seriously. Obviously, we've seen the racial violence recently and the discussions around race has really heightened with people talking more openly about it. Obviously, it's not a new occurrence. It's not something that's just suddenly come up. And I hope that this is giving people an opportunity to really reflect on their own biases and prejudices. They take individual responsibility for them, but also consider how they are ingrained into our society. And obviously, we're talking more about on virtual platforms and virtual meetings. And that's also highlighted different kinds of inequities, like who has access to fast broadband, who has access to an individual computer, who has access to a quiet space, who has responsibility for childcare. We are seeing gender inequities about how women have to take much more of domestic labor and about childcare responsibility and how that is going to affect women's role and their status in society. And so I think I think the world is going to change because obviously we don't know how long this is going to last. And we cannot keep talking about how we're going to come back to a normal because this is going to be a new normal. We don't want to go back to how things were. We want to really reflect on what this has shown us and how we can change our society for the better. Well, there's so much there. But let's start with this question of the debate that's taking place about the way in which people of colour have been more susceptible to the pandemic and also their levels of morbidity, I think, have been higher in the BME community. And as you say, Pragya, the way in which people's responses to that reflect some of the issues in your book around unconscious bias. So tell me about your view of that debate, of what people are saying and why they're saying it and how we ought best to actually understand what's going on. I wrote an article for The Independent on the 29th of March, just as we were going into lockdown and the discussions about pandemic were becoming more amplified in the UK about how medical and healthcare bias can affect people of colour or BME community. And we have to protect them. We have to consider these biases. And some of these still stand because in my book, I look at extensive research and data to show that there's bias within healthcare professionals. There's bias in the way that these textbook and curriculum are designed. The kind of long history of racial prejudice has been ingrained in some of the literature that we read about that talk about, for instance, like black people have thicker skin or they have higher tolerance for pain. And the way that people sometimes react or professionals sometimes react to women experiencing pain has resulted in the way that the diagnosis and treatment works as well. So that can affect BME people. Also, the socioeconomic inequities that I just talked about, about the kind of places that they live in, the kind of housing that they have, because they have less socioeconomic privileges, that can affect how they are being affected by the virus, their morbidity rates, but also how they're being treated and how much confidence they have in coming forward to the medical professionals as well. But not just that, we know that there are more BME people. And I don't like the term BME because it kind of lumps and homogenizes a broad range of people within this. But for the purposes of this, I'll just use that, that we know that there are more frontline workers from this community. And we know that there has been a lack of proper equipment to protect them. And so more BME people are obviously succumbing to this virus. And so 
that is something we have to focus on. That is what we have to focus on about why BME communities are being more affected because of the long history of socioeconomic inequities. But what the discussion is often framed around is that they are somehow different genetically or biologically, that they are racial differences, they are inherent racial differences, which mean that some ethnicities are more likely to succumb to it. And that is rooted in the notion that some races are superior or better than others. I know, and other people have written about it, that race is a social construct. We are not really that much genetically different from each other in terms of how different ethnicities are defined. And I think there is a real danger that we can go down that route again, something that we have tried really hard to overcome and debate in the last few years. So so those are some of my thoughts on this topic. Presumably part of the reason that people would prefer a kind of biological explanation rather than a social explanation would be we don't have to feel guilty. You know, if I'm a privileged person in society, I don't need to feel guilty if the reason that black people are more likely to get the illness or die is because of their biological differences. Whereas if I recognize it's because of, as you say, patterns of social inequality, then I need to consider how I am implicated in the fact that my fellow citizens are suffering more intensely. Absolutely. And this is a really emotive topic for a lot of people. So when I give talks and things and I talk about white privilege, people get really defensive about it. And People get really aggravated sometimes as well. They say that they don't have any privileges. They know many other people of color or black people who are more educated, more privileged, more richer than them. And I've just written a lot about that, especially on Instagram and stuff, because that's where the communities are engaging at the moment, about how white privilege or the privilege that you have, we all have these different layers of privilege. And people don't want to acknowledge that because that is questioning their status quo. That is questioning that some of the obstacles in their paths have been removed in life because of their skin color, because of the way that they are the norm. They are the social norm. They'll always be the norm. And so I think people get defensive about it because ultimately, yes, it does question their status quo. It does make them take responsibility and accountability for some of the things that are happening with racism and racial prejudice. And I think it's holding individuals responsible, which people are uncomfortable about. Can we move to a slightly different topic, which is the role that behavioral science, behavioral psychology and economics has played in our response to the virus? So there was at the beginning of this in the UK, there was a kind of backlash against the herd immunity strategy, because on the one hand, there was a kind of reaction against who are these experts who are determining the policy, which looks like it wasn't the right policy in the early days. But since then, of course, you know, we've all had to get involved in this conversation because it's been a public debate about the consequences of locking down and then the consequences of freeing up. And as I speak to you today, it seems to me we're involved in another experiment. And that experiment is, you know, that you can step by step by step remove restrictions. And, you know, I have a son in America. He tells me that particularly amongst young people, once you start to lift restrictions and there's an assumption that you're going to lift more, often young people go, well, if that's what's going to happen in a few weeks, I may as well preempt it and start behaving now as if all the rules have gone. So as an academic in this field, as an expert, what have you made of the role that behavioural science has played in policy and public discourse over the last few weeks? Frankly, it's been really baffling to me. I've been just like mystified and just watching with a lot of scepticism and 
bafflement really about how it's being shaped, how it's being talked about. Personally, I think, yes, there is a lot of merit in thinking about behavioral science, but it cannot explain how the society is going to react. It can make some predictive assumptions on how people might react. And I think some of the theories are not that well grounded that the economists, especially behavioral economists were talking about. But we have to also consider how the media plays on these things. We don't exactly know what the policymakers were taking on board, how they were really supported by the theories that they were talking about. The way that the discussion has been shaped is being very distorted and it's been very confusing. I think that we can really understand our reaction to some of the information we are getting through behavioral science about how we judge information, how we often believe different kinds of information and we see how it's been perpetuated in WhatsApp groups as well and the kind of myths that circulate around social media. It can show us how social media echo chambers and filter bubbles are formed and we have to be wary of it about how we get trapped into this and we start believing the information that's been circulated in our echo chambers. It shows us about how we judge and validate different bits of pieces of news that is coming our way and what we trust and what we don't trust. And so it's really showing us a lot about about people's behavior, about how we make judgments about information and news, what kind of information and news we share, how it gets circulated and amplified. And yes, people's response to the lifting of the lockdown would be like that. We often trust that things are going to be okay. And especially in hindsight, we often believe there's a hindsight bias. We often believe that we often knew how things were going to be when we look back in the past. And so we would say, I always knew that it's going to happen like this. I always knew that it's going to be okay. There's also confirmation bias. And if somebody who know and trust and it's part of our tribe, we if they are behaving in a certain way, we are more likely to behave and act in a certain way as well. So then that creates a cascade, a waterfall effect as well, which gets propagated in society. It's a really huge topic to think about how the information that's being given to people is not being very clear. It's not, we don't know that this is how we're supposed to behave. So we are not being able to take this kind of individual responsibility for our decisions and actions. There's always this sense of, oh, well, this is okay to do because nobody's telling me what really to do. And I think that's where the fault has light as well in the way that some of the information around the pandemic and lockdown has been given to the public. What I find fascinating about this debate, Pragyar, is that, you know, I'm a sociologist, and so I'm interested in culture and in power and in groups. And behavioral science often has a more individualistic perspective. Economists tend to view the world more individualistically. Psychologists tend to view the world more individualistically. And it feels to me as though part of the problem about behavioral science is that it kind of makes predictions about behavior in the absence of the importance of the group, the importance of culture, the importance of reflexivity. The fact that the second somebody knows that a particular response is expected of them, that then changes the likelihood of them responding in that way. So the the nature of kind of social discourse is important to this. And that's why prediction is extremely difficult, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And what you say is right to a huge extent, because I think that's why we cannot really We cannot look at it in one dimensional perspective. I think the response to something like this has to be a very multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary perspective and kind of approach. And I think that's been missing. And 
Yes, we have to take individual models and we can make predictions, but we have to talk about how people respond in society and what is the group dynamic is going to be. And we have to model those behaviors. We have to model those dynamics between people. We have to model those tribal instincts, those biases that come because of people living in societies, in cultures. And we have to take all those things into account. And you're right about that. Yes. There's almost a kind of Schrodinger's cat element of this, isn't there? Which is that at the point at which you describe something publicly, it ceases to be the thing that it was before by the very act the way you describe it. So the moment you say to the public, well, we're going to do these things because we think you're going to react in these ways. Some people go, okay, fine. And other people will rebel against that or they'll think that's not legitimate. And this, I think, is what happened at the beginning of the crisis is that some people just did not like the whole idea of behavioral science being used because they felt it somehow reduced their agency. They felt manipulated. And I am not sure about why policymakers have to say that this is backed by behavioral science. I was very skeptical about that because it absolves them of responsibility. It absolves them of taking ownership of that decision. And yes, you cannot nudge people in a certain way and tell them that you're being nudged because that is kind of counterintuitive, I think. And if you tell somebody that you're being, yes, they feel manipulated. You're trialing somebody that this is what science tells us and this is what we think you should act or you are going to act if we do this. I'm not sure... That is the right way of dealing with something like this. These are huge decisions about people. You have to take people's trust into account. People have to feel like they're being taken care of, that they are in hands which they can trust, that people are giving them information that they can trust. But how do we trust information? We can only trust information and make these judgments based on historic legacy and the way that it's been shaped, the narrative has been shaped in media and politics. And I think our decisions and our reaction to information that is also based according to this partisan political association that we have made as well. So if somebody we do not trust anyway, who's not part of our tribe, tells us that this is the right way to be, we are going to trust them less than somebody who we trust and believe. So I think it is a matter of trust as well. And I don't think that was the right approach, but that's a huge discussion in itself. It's a very subtle thing, isn't it, Pragyag? And I I felt this about your book, which one of the things I liked about your book was that, you know, I picked up a book and it's a book about unconscious bias. And, you know, I might think, well, hang on, this is going to be a book about the fact that people of privilege, white people are inherently kind of prejudiced and see the world through a particular way. It's going to be a book that might make me feel kind of bad about myself, negative about the human race, worried about our inherent tribalism. And yet, whilst your book absolutely drives home the prevalence of unconscious bias, you avoid blame. It's it's not a book that is designed to make people feel bad about themselves. It's a book that's inclined to get people to think about themselves and to understand where they're coming from and to recognize the, the need to ask themselves questions about the way in which they view the world. And I read your book immediately after I read Rutger Bregman's book, Humankind. And the core of that is that he argues that we have been encouraged to believe that human beings are bad you know, by some dodgy social psychology, by kind of neoclassical economics and its account of people as being, you know, selfish interest maximizers or whatever. And he said, yeah, the evidence, overwhelming evidence is that human beings are basically good people. Now, yes, we are tribal. And the thing we need to work with is that we are fundamentally good, but we are going to have to work at the fact that we have evolved to look at the world through a kind of slightly tribal lens. But it does seem to me that an important part of this is that we do ultimately believe 
that human beings are good people. Is that a naive view, Pragya? No, I think it's that's the hopeful view I wanted to have in my book. And you're right, I didn't want to create a judgmental space. I really wanted it to be a non-judgmental book, as fair as possible, and to give the message that I am biased and so are you. We are all biased. And I know people get really defensive and it's a very emotive thing. So I had to tread really carefully about it. I wanted it to create this safe space where people can read it and reflect on their own biases. And I was doing that while I was writing the book as well. And throughout writing the book, I wanted to remember this quote by Raymond Williams, which says, my goal is to keep hope alive rather than despair convincing. So make hope alive. And I'm kind of paraphrasing that, but that's the whole kind of gist of it. And I really wanted to say that unless we do that, that we cannot work towards creating a fair-minded and egalitarian society and that we all can do that. That's what the aim of the book is, that we can all reflect on it. It's not me sitting here and making judgment on anybody who's reading the book. And so I hope people read it in that spirit. And I hope people reflect on that while they read it, because there's a lot of science in it. There's a lot of personal experience. There's a lot of interviews and questionnaires and all the data has been collected together and bringing together different disciplines to say, yes, this is what is happening. This is why it's happening. And this is what we can do about it. So I think, yes, we want to be good people. We should have the tools to be good people. I think that's what I believe. Oh, absolutely. And I I think that, you know, to draw our conversation together, that this being positive, but also being clear eyed is what we need. And it's felt to me sometimes that the government's approach has been to veer between being kind of manipulative, viewing people as that you need to kind of deal with people because they'll respond in quite knee jerk ways to things. And, And then occasionally this kind of Johnsonian kind of, oh, good old British pluck will get us through it. You know, we've got the greatest system for doing this or the other. And actually, this moving between a kind of a view of humanity which denies its agency and then a kind of rather kind of shallow view that we can do anything as long as we put our minds to it. But you know, what your book says and what I'm hearing from you is that we should have a positive view of humanity, but also one that is clear-eyed about our limitations. Yes, and you're right that the message has been very confusing. And this whole message saying this good old British values or treating it as a war or this same vocabulary has been really misleading. It is also giving a message to people that this is a fight we are in, that we can all fight, that we are all able to do that. But some people aren't. And unless we, they are given the mechanisms and tools to do that, they wouldn't be able to do that. They cannot fight this virus, they will succumb to it and we can succumb to it. So I think giving a clear message is really important, which the government has failed to do. Absolutely. And the vocabulary that's being used is very misleading as well. So we can keep a hopeful and positive view, but we need a very clear message and vocabulary around it. Well, Pragya, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking with you. I really enjoyed your book. I really enjoyed our conversation. I just have one last question for you, which is that we are starting to come out of lockdown now, but we had two months of it. And many people use that as an opportunity to learn a new skill, develop a new enthusiasm, develop a new interest, baking bread, making food, whatever it might be. You've been promoting a book and doing lots of writing, but have you had any time to develop any new skills or enthusiasms? 
I think this has given me an opportunity to think about those enthusiasms and hobbies that sometimes get left behind because I'm so busy. So yes, I'm currently writing a new book, which is coming out early 2021 and the deadlines this month. And along with that, I have been doing these Instagram live chats on my Instagram with author of different author to think about how writing has changed and how they're responding to the lockdown and how they're doing because there was this whole myth that we have to be super productive during this time and come out writing King Lear or Macbeth or something. Also, I just put together a South Asian literary festival, which I really wanted to showcase books and authors that often don't get promoted. I needed to get people to look outside their echo chambers again, readers, and discover and to create a space for other South Asian authors from around the world, um, the diasporic community. And so that has been really successful. So I'm just coming out of that. So it's been a busy time. It's been a busy time along with childcare and other things. Well, that's pretty stunning. And I can only be really grateful to you for managing to fit 30 minutes of this podcast into your busy schedule. Pragya, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. It's been lovely. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.